0: This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 13. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two, two, two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. If any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word.
1: You may be seated. Thank you, Jeff. We are uh, in the middle of a series going through the book of Mark, and essentially our task is to, to go back to God's Word and allow God to define who Jesus is according to those eyewitnesses that live life with Him. And this is particularly important this time of year in the land in which we live because everyone in popular media is going to be out there this week talking to you about who the real Jesus is. And unfortunately, what they will by and large tell you will contradict what the Bible actually says about Jesus. And so while they have brilliant philosophies and very sharp minds, unfortunately, the only document we have from the people who lived life with Jesus is in front of us, and we're reading it in the Gospel of Mark. And so what I'm trying to do for us is I'm trying to get us to go back and look at who Jesus is, not the one we wanna create, to support who we want to be, but the one who comes as Lord and Savior and says, this is who I am. And this is who you need me to be. And so that's why we're going through the gospel of Mark. And it's particularly important right now where we live in the time of year that we're at with Easter and Holy Week upon us. I will not preach all of one through 13. I went through one through six last week. I'll just be preaching from seven through 13 But I wanted to uh, have the text back up there again to remind us of what is the major theme going on right now in this part of the book of Mark, and that's the offense, the scandal of Jesus, that he's just incredibly scandalous. You will not hear from the media this week that Jesus is scandalous and offensive. You just won't, and yet the Bible is really clear. He says in John, listen, everyone, the world hates me. There's no culture, no people group, There's no gender, there's just no one out there that I'm not gonna offend with what I have to say. And he says in Matthew 11, he says, blessed, a beatitude, you know, blessing upon, divine blessing upon the person who does not take offense at me. In other words, you're gonna feel something offensive when I come to talk to you. But blessed is the one, the divine blessing of God is upon the one who doesn't take that offense, who feels it, but doesn't take it. And so this morning, we're gonna continue on with that same theme, and we're gonna find that, that Jesus, everywhere he went, in, in any, anywhere in history, in any culture, any people group, uh, anyone that he comes in contact with, he offends them. And he gets this visceral reaction, this they took offense in verse three. This not just I disagree with what you're saying, let's coexist, but I hate you. And I, deep down inside of me, reject you, and I want you to experience hostility from me, And what the scriptures teach us is that if we faithfully follow this one, we too will experience visceral rejection and hostility from people we are trying to bless. So we might as well get ready for it. But the idea that's being picked up today, the story that's being told of Jesus taking his 12 in and sending them out it is an idea that's been percolating from chapter 1. And it's an idea that we've seen over and over and over. And I realize some of you have not been with us since last fall when we started to go through the book. So just a brief little bit of review. Do you remember in Mark chapter one, the very first sermon that Jesus preaches? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And then right away, he goes up to some fishermen and he says, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. So from the very beginning, Jesus is not a solo artist. He has no intentions of he himself in his body being the only one who administers his kingdom, his mission and his grace and his salvation. He from the very beginning has intended to multiply his kingdom through the ones that he saves. That the gospel is grace and you really only experience grace once it goes through you to someone else. That if it just stops inside of you, it will cause you to be spiritually constipated and it will sour on you that the whole book is about this idea that what I give you, I want you to fully experience it by you giving it to someone else. Forgiveness, mercy, reconciliation, honesty, whatever it is, whatever good gift from the Father I have for you, you will fully experience it once you give it away. And we see this with Levi. You know, right away in chapter two, he goes to Levi. So it's not just some fisherman from Galilee. Now it's a tax collector. Now it's a turncoat. Now it's one that the people would absolutely hate, the one connected with other sinners and prostitutes. And he goes to, to Levi and he says, come on, let's go, leave your tax booth behind. Matthew, same, name, same guy, different name. And it says he goes into his house and he begins to witness to other sinners and prostitutes. That the hope of Jesus is never just to go give Levi a little bit of information, a little gold ticket for him to be able to go to heaven but to get Levi to come and follow him into the mission that he's on. And then in chapter three, when Jesus is swarmed by all those people and they are pressing in on him and crushing one another just to touch him, he realizes they're trying to use me. They don't wanna be related to me. What they need to know is that they need an intimate relationship with me forever and I will give it to them by grace. So remember he goes up on the mountain. It's the first time we hear of the 12 that are in our passage today. And it says he selects or, or elects 12 to come up on the mountain with him. And he says, I want you to be with me, and then I'm going to send you. That's the word for apostle. I'm going to send you out to multiply what I am doing. I'm going to put my name on you, and eventually I'm going to put my spirit in you, and you're going to go do what I'm doing. But first, you've got to be with me, and you've got to know the gospel, and you've got to know what the kingdom is about, and then I'm going to send you. So we get to this place In uh, chapter six, and, and we're here, he's decided to send them out. So what has he trained them from chapter three to chapter six? What is need to know information for the man going out, for the woman going out to build God's kingdom? Right away in chapter four, he explains his kingdom in parable, that it's gonna start small, but it's gonna multiply and it is going to be victorious. And you need to know that your call is to be faithful in scattering the seeds. Don't worry about fruits and roots and those sort of thing. And the people I want you to communicate to, just go out and scatter as liberally as you can the news of the gospel. That's part of what they needed to know. And then in chapter five, they needed to know that the one that they served, the one that commissioned them and sent them out is the one with all authority, all power, all rule. He goes in in the vicious storm that's clearly demonic in nature in chapter five. He just wakes up from a nap and says, sit down and shut up, and it does. And then he meets a man, remember, in Gerasene, the man with a legion of demons inside of him, demonizing him. And, And he heals this man with just simple Simple talk, because his, his word is so powerful. And not only that, then they come back and they find out that this one who is in control of nature and in control of Satan and all of those who work for him, this one can go to a woman who has not been healed by anyone in 12 years, and simply by her touching the, the, the end of his garment, she's made well. And then they go to Jairus' house, remember? And he just pulls a little girl up out of death as if she'd just been asleep. This is what they needed to know. But last and certainly not least, they needed to know what happened to Jesus in his hometown in Nazareth. That his village, his 500 closest friends, that his relatives, and that his own household viscerally, deeply, passionately rejected him because he scandalized them with what he said. And they needed to know that this was going to happen to them too. And this is how you handle rejection. And I remind you what I taught you in chapter four, your job is to scatter the seed, not to decide how they're going to respond to what you say to them. And so you and I, I mean, we might be utterly shocked to know that one of our chores as believers is to be offensive. This is an amazing sermon if you have the gift of offense like I do. Because what this text tells us Although it's incredibly popular to say, you know, Jesus had this this ministry of presence. He was just out there being compassionate and healing people. Why can't we just coexist? And the reality is, is, Mark is telling us very bluntly, very clearly, the priority in Jesus's ministry was teaching, not healing. The priority was telling people to repent, not exercising demons. Now, he never preached without doing the latter, but he never did the latter until he did the former. And so for us in our day and age, and at my particular age and a little below, it's so cool to do deeds without any words. And Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm sending you to do. I'm sending you to offend. I get asked all the time, particularly in our office downtown, we have a little old house that's now in an area with other offices. I get asked all the time, what do you do? And and I don't know why I hate the pastor word, but I just do. I don't say pastor very well. Maybe it's my 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 past. Um but I just don't say pastor real well. So I say church planter. And they're like, what the heck's a church planter? And I'm like, well, a church planter moves into an area and he tries to find new people who need community and who need forgiveness and who need, need mercy. And, and a church planter moves into an area and he looks for physical need, physical need that needs to be met. And he tries to meet that. And he looks for, for current existing ministries that are under supported. And he tries to bring people along to support those ministries. How winsome. Doesn't that sound amazing? I never say, I'm looking for new ways to tick people off. I'm looking for a fresh batch of people to tick off with the truth of the gospel. I don't. We don't either. And yet, Jesus is telling us that if we move out into his mission, we will get to this point in verse 11. Do you see it in verse 11? you will get to the point where they will not receive you. If you're faithfully following me, you will get to the point where they will not receive you, they will not listen to you, and I want you to leave and shake the dust that is on your feet off as a testimony against them. That we will eventually get to this place where we have to employ this Old Testament and New Testament practice. You see Paul doing this in Acts chapter 13 and Acts chapter 18 where he dusts He shakes the dust off of his garments when he leaves a place of unbelief. And he says in Acts chapter 18, your blood is on your head. I'm innocent of it. That at some point we have to get to that place where we've told people what the gospel is, what the good news, what the proclamation and the preaching of Jesus is. And we, at some point, if we're faithfully following him, he's telling us, you will get to this place where you need to tell them the information I've given you is on your head and not mine. What is it that we are telling people that's going to be so radically offensive? Do you see what the disciples' sermon is summarized by in one word in verse 12? So they went out and proclaimed or preached that people should repent. This is what's so offensive. You're wrong. The problem with the world is not a lack of resources. The problem with the world is not poor distribution of the resources we have. The problem with the world is not a lack of education. The problem with the world is you and the pride inside of you. And from that, I'm calling you to repent, to turn, to change your mind, to say out loud, I'm wrong. We talked about this last week, how this this theme throughout the entire Bible from Naaman in 2 Kings 5 to Paul in Romans 11, there's this theme shot throughout of how offensive it is to us to have to say, I'm wrong and not, I'm sorry. We teach our kids, don't say I'm sorry, say I'm wrong. Even at two, my two-year-old stutters to try and say, I'm wrong. I'd rather say I'm sorry. It might've been outside of my control. The circumstances just didn't quite line up for us well, you know, I did punch you because it's, I'm, I'm undereducated. My parents have not taken me to Disney often enough. I don't have the right toy. So I am, I'm very sorry for what happened between the two of us, but I'm not wrong. I don't think in our heads like, yeah, 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 saved by grace, I can do nothing to get God to love me, yada, yada, yada. Jesus lived the perfect life, then he died. Okay, okay, I get it. I don't think this pierces how offensive it is to our very own souls. I was thinking about it this week, I am... Trisha had to say the words, I forgive you to me. Whew, that did not sit well with me. I mean, it just went right at my pride. She didn't say, it's okay, I'm guilty too. She didn't say, oh, it's okay. You had a long day. I had to say, I'm wrong. And she had to say, I forgive you. Do you see how that grates at the core of my pride when someone else says, I forgive you? And you would think forgiveness, mercy, grace, hallelujah, everybody have some. It's horribly offensive to us that the message that the disciples preach can be captured in one word, repent. Where'd they get it from? Jesus, his message as recorded by Mark is two words, repent and believe. It's incredibly offensive to us. And so Jesus, number one, sends his disciples out into the ministry of offense. But he sends them out wanting them to winsomely offend as they go. Let's look at three ideas from this text that tell us that Jesus wants them, yes, to offend, and yet to winsomely so, to engage the people that they are offending, to live in such a way that the offense of what they say makes the messenger hard to dismiss. There's three, at least three, I found about seven or eight, but I will give you three this morning, three ideas that says, yes, we are intended to go out and offend with our message, but we are supposed to do it in such a winsome, engaging, loving way that it's very difficult to dismiss us. You see in verse seven, and he called the 12. Now, if you've been paying attention at all in in this sermon series, this should rather catch us by surprise that these guys are going out into the mission. They are multiplying Jesus's mission by six. Do you see that going out two by two? So now there are seven Jesus's out there. Listen to what they've done so far. Chapter one, Peter tried to impede Jesus and his ministry, telling Jesus, don't go pray and teach. Come over here and heal some people. Then in chapter four, we find out they don't understand Jesus's teaching. And Jesus is actually surprised. He's like, you don't understand yet? And then in, verse, in chapter five, when Jesus has to calm the storm, he is actually shocked that they don't exhibit faith yet. He's like, you've experienced enough and you've learned enough. You should have faith by now. He's surprised. They become exasperated with him and they've rebuked him multiple times. And so you think, oh, but Jesus knows. He knows that they're turning the corner. He knows that they're now ready to go out and proclaim his grace. Listen to what they're gonna do in the future. They're gonna continue to not understand chapter eight. They're gonna continue to try and control Jesus to abandon his mission and adopt theirs. They're gonna make promises they can't keep. They're gonna abandon him. They're going to deny him. They're going to betray him. Judas is one of the ones out right now in the book of Mark preaching the gospel. Okay, Dad, I get the idea that Jesus sends out his children to build the kingdom, but I'm just not ready yet. I feel ill-prepared. I don't feel equipped. I still haven't seen victory in this particular sin area of my life. Join the club. Join the club. I mean, one of the things that happens to us at Assessment Center when we go and they assess to see if you're ready to plant a church, one of the things they want to know is, do you know you can't do it? Because then you're ready to go try and do it. If you go to the assessment center with an answer for every question they have, I've got really bad news for you. They're gonna say you're not ready. That the story throughout the scripture is the story over and over and over of the human being being ill-prepared, not ready, exhibiting a pattern of failure, not success. And we would say, why? Why in the world would this be the case? Listen to what one commentator wrote that Jesus is strong in our weakness. Uncomprehending and ill-prepared disciples typify believers in every age and place who are sent out by the Lord of the harvest. No matter how much exegesis, that is understanding of scripture, no no matter how much theology, that is worldview philosophical thinking, no matter how much counseling one has studied, one is never prepared for ministry. A genuine call to ministry always calls us to that for which we are not adequately prepared. It's only in awareness of our inadequacy that Christians experience the presence and the promise of Jesus Christ. Why would Jesus send failures out to proclaim repentance? Because they're not going out saying you're wrong. They go out saying we're wrong. Do you see the radical difference in that? Do you see the radical difference between self-righteous condemnation of I am now a black diamond in the Christian world and so you're multiple layers below me but if you will follow Jesus for as long as me, you can get up to where I'm at. You're wrong. And the difference of, man, every day I wake up, I discover how wrong I truly am. And every day I wake up, there are days where I think I've never been a believer before because I just now understand I think for the first time. That when I come to you and I see sin in your life and I see pride and I see that's what's wrong with our world, that part of your heart, that pride that says me and my kingdom, when I see that, I know it because I know it in me. And so I come to you and I say, listen, we're wrong, but I've got good news about one who saves wrong people. I I can't tell you, I don't understand, but the guilt and the shame, it's gone. It sneaks back up on me, but when I go to worship, the guilt and shame is gone. I don't know what else to tell you. We're wrong, but I know one who saves wrong people. And so do you see the difference between the offensive message of you're wrong and the winsome message of we're wrong? Second, not only who he sins or the failures and not successes, this is how he sins. Verse eight, nine, and 10, go back with me. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics, And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So this is what you should take. A walking stick and some protection against wild animals. A belt, we only know that because he says don't put money in it. Sandals for the rocky road and one tunic. And we only know one change of clothes because he tells them not to take two. Now this is quite radical, but what is even more radical is what he says not to take. No bread, it's the word artos. It means food of any kind. No bag. It could mean a travel bag or it could mean a beggar's bag. It could mean either one. No money. It literally says no chalk costs. No small change. No second tunic. They don't wear two. They're not worried about germs and dirt like we are. It's, that's what you would cover up with at night when it gets cold. It's a blanket. Do you see the word that our texts use? What Jesus says, chapter, verse eight, take nothing for their journey. They're not going to Publix without their wallet. They're not going to the beach for two days without six bags. They're going for month-long journeys with only what they have on their back. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus set it up this way? It's brilliant what he does. He does it for this reason. He guarantees that they're going to be a winsome offense. He says, be dependent on me by having to depend on those you're going to minister to. Did you catch that? The people you have offensive news for, you need them to take you you into their house. So I'd be careful how I tell them. The very next thing after no two tunics, to them, I can be outside in the ancient Near East as long as I've got something to cover up with at night. The very next thing is, you're going to be in their house And I don't want you to stay. I don't want you to depart from that house until you leave town. No finding a better place the next day and moving up. Just stay there in those humble circumstances and help them with their farm. Help them with their business. Help them with their way of life so that they're glad to help you with yours. The second way that Jesus does keeps us from being just radically offensive but being winsomely offensive is that he says, be dependent on me as I provide for you through those you're ministering to. Why would Jesus do this? He wants us to go model what we're preaching. We're preaching to them. You're trying to find life in things. Look at the joy in the community I have with no things. You're you're trying to find life in created things. Look at the joy in the life I want to share with you from knowing the creator of those things. He's just saying, go enjoy life and community two by two with them and outlive them. One of the most radical things I've ever seen in my life is the Bible study of some extraordinarily wealthy men being led by a man who doesn't have any money in a savings account. And if you get them drunk enough, they will tell you that the reason they like being with this man is because with the abundance they have in their hands, they have nothing in their hearts. And what he does not have in his hands, he has in spades in his heart. And they wanna figure that out. So Jesus is saying, I want you to go love them so well that they'll take you into their house and provide for you. And I want you to model for them that you having less is better than everything that they have. How do we convince our city that one sexual partner in the bonds of marriage is the best option forever and ever, and it just keeps getting better and better? We do it. and then we confess what we've done in the past just like them and where in our heart now we need to confess. How do we convince the world that the most joy and the most life and the most significance is doing exactly what Jesus tells us to do? We just go love on them and live with them and do it. This is the second way that Jesus keeps us from being radically offensive and tells us to be winsomely offensive. And the last, very quickly, what does he send them to do? So who does he send? Failures, not successes. How does he send? Utterly dependent, not self-sufficient. And what does he send them to do? So we'll go back to verse 12, our verse of offense. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil, many who were sick and healed him. You you see that word for healed? It's the word therapeuo. It could mean healed or it could just mean Served. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to tell them to repent, verse 12, and verse 13, I want you to bring redemption and hope and help to their land. Bring prosperity to them so that when they're offended by the message, they're so drawn to the messenger that they don't want you to leave. It's interesting that they are anointing people with oil. I think this is really part of what Jesus is trying to tell us when he says, don't take anything except these things. How did they possibly come upon oil? Well, first of all, oil is not hard to come upon in this day and age. But being the one who puts oil on wounded people is the job of a servant. You got leprosy? Hey, listen, you need to repent. You need to change your mind about how you've been living. But can I rub that oil on your leprosy? you have a headache? Hey, listen, you need to know you're not going to find life in your job, but could I be the one who massages your forehead and helps you with your headache? Do you see this contrast? Do you see the conundrum that we put the world in if we begin to live like this? I don't want them to go, but I'm really offended by the exclusivity of what they say. They're incredibly inclusive in who they serve and they're really narrow and exclusive in what they believe. And I don't, know what to do with it. I came across an amazing, amazing article that captures this idea. My friend, Christy Christensen, sent this to me, as she did probably some of you. I don't know if you read it or not. But this is the best, current, right-in-this-moment illustration I have for what Jesus is teaching us this morning. Matthew Paris writes for the Times of London. He wrote this article on December 27th, 2008. The title was, As an Atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. I'll read that again. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God. And this is the subtitle missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem. The Times in London does what they call a Christmas appeal. It's an appeal for people to donate towards charities that they support. And one of the charities that they support is in Malawi, it's Pump Aid. It's a way for people to have safe uh, pumps and sanitized pumps so they can have water that does not harm and hurt them. And this is what he writes about in this. I mean, I, I brought it because I thought some of you might want it. I mean, it's a three-page article. And I mean, I read it probably 10 times. I was so astounded by it, by what he said. I, could, I couldn't believe, I, can't, I just can't believe it. You'll have to read it for yourself. He says, these are, our, this, these are my options. He describes himself as a confirmed atheist. That means he doesn't believe there's a God. And he says elsewhere, I have a growing belief that there is no God. So he's saying, this is where my worldview is. This is where my philosophy is. This is is what I think about things. And he says, we as confirmed atheists have three options for thinking about missionaries in Africa. We can number one, despise them. And he says, only the most radical secularist would say this land is better off without that hospital or school. He says, or we could pity them. We could say, It's just a shame that their faith has to be a part of this. I wish they were stronger, more evolved people so that they didn't need their faith to go serve other people. And then he says, or we might be forced to believe that the African people need evangelism and not just mercy. Did you hear that? He said, I'm not just okay with their mercy and their deeds and what they do. I've come to understand the people of Africa need what they say. And their evangelism. This is astounding. I'm not making this up. He, these are quotes about Christianity. This is the winsome offense of the gospel. I'm convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Unlike anything else, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. This is not a commentator on Mark. This is a confirmed atheist The effect of the transfer of faith to the flock is so immense, I cannot help but observe it. We must not kid ourselves in thinking that providing the material means or even the know-how that accompanies what we call development will make the necessary change. A whole belief system must first be supplanted. Christianity with its teaching of direct personal two-way link between the individual and God is liberating. How did he get to this place of saying these things? As a young boy, he grew up in Africa and he always found safety around believers. As a 24-year-old, he traveled the continent and whenever they were in populated areas, they stayed in missions because they knew they could be taken care of and they knew they'd be protected from danger. And now as one who went to report on the pump aid team, he met multiple believers who did not hide their faith. And these were his conclusions. Despite all of this, this man shows us, this man shows us that even with all of this winsome appeal, we will still get to the end at some point and we will have to say, I shake off the dust from your house. That despite all of this, that we will still have to walk away and say, this is on your head and not mine. So let's test the balance in our own lives. Let's, let's test the balance of offending yet serving. (laughs) Let's test this. Let's just think about this in my life. I mean, I've got the radical ability to offend. And yet I don't see a whole lot of service in my life. In the last five years, if you haven't offended anyone with the truth of the gospel, if you have not experienced visceral hostility, you've been too risk averse, too soft, too needy of approval, too cowardly, too inconsistent, too something. Do we see verse seven? He summons the twelve. He called them in. Last week was a prophetic motif. He comes in to teach in their synagogue and he has his retinue behind him. He has his people behind him, his scribes coming along to learn. This week, he's acting like a king on the march. He says, come to me. And he began to send them out as ambassadors two by two. He gave or endowed. He granted them authority. Jurisdiction is what the word means. He charged them. Do we are we ready to repent for the reality that we think that as Christians we can just sort of stand static in our relationships and not feel sent to go tell people about Jesus? Hey, dear neighbor, I've noticed your grass looks good. You have a good clean haircut. I was wondering, could you tell me about the new heavens and the new earth, please? I'm just sitting here minding my own business and praying that somebody will come along and ask me to tell them about Jesus. That's how I live. On Saturdays, I'm out in my yard making my yard beautiful, hoping that my neighbors will come over and say, you know what? I've been thinking. Someone needs to tell me about repentance and faith. I'm I'm having a miserable life over here. Nothing's fulfilling me. I've noticed your five kids screaming around. Would you please tell me about this? And at the same time, if no unbeliever has called you friend in the past five years, then you've been too offensive, too mean, too judgmental, too condemning. Listen, the gospel's offensive enough by itself. When I add personal obnoxiousness to it, it's volcanic. <laughs> How do we get to this place? How do we get to this place? Do you see what's going on here on the one side? On the one side, I don't want to offend anyone and I'm living in fear. I'm needing approval. And on the other side, I'll offend anyone, but I won't serve anyone. How do we get to this place where we're not living out of fear and we're not living out of pride? How do we get to this place where I'm willing to offend anyone and not lose sleep over it, and yet I will serve anyone because they're a human being? It's not more education. It's not more resources. It's not more distribution of resources. It's repentance and faith. We engage in the same sermon that we're preaching to others. What is the gospel? What does the gospel invite us into? The gospel says, you don't need someone else's approval. You have the approval of God Almighty. Jesus lived this beautiful, wonderful, amazing life. And then at the end, he gives us this status. He gives us this righteousness. He gives us this approval of the Father. I was at IHOP um, on Riley's birthday this week. And uh, man, I hate IHOPs. I smell so bad when I come out of there. Um, but she wanted to go and it was her birthday and I could not manipulate her out of it. And... Um, <laughs> And she, she's six, and she had on these diamond earrings and this cross pendant from Target for a dollar that Maddie gave her. And she looked like she was 20 years old to me. I mean, I started to get tears in my eyes thinking about this beautiful little girl and how fast she's grown up. And my heart just, I was overwhelmed with love for this little girl. And I was just blown away by how deeply this crusty old offensive man could begin to feel these feelings for this six-year-old angel. And in walked a man over here. He looked 70 or 75, an old curmudgeon, an old grumpy man. He sat in, he wouldn't talk to anybody. Multiple people said hello. He's sitting right next to me at IHOP on, on 50. And he's sitting right there and he's just this old, this old offensive looking man. And, and the, they said, you want your usual? And all he would do is nod his head. And then finally a 50-year-old woman walked in and, and his day just brightened. It's his daughter. And, and I, I saw in his eyes a little bit of a tear. I mean, he came alive in the love for his daughter. Do you understand in the gospel that Jesus gives us that much love from the heavenly father? He can't stop loving us. We can't do anything to get him to love us more. We're that approved. We have that much status. We have that much love. And so we can walk into any relationship and say, you may be offended by me and tell me to leave, but I'm okay because the God of the universe loves me and delights in me and he really is wild about me. On the other side of the coin, it should be somewhat humbling to us that the God of the universe had to go through that to save us. That the gospel is this message that both it dismantles our pride, it takes apart our fear, and it builds us up in the love and the humility of God. And says, now, because I did all that for you, there's no one that you can't do all that for. Which is yet another reason why we're offended by the grace is because we don't want him to be able to say what we have to do next. We'd like to have just a little bit of leverage. And so we'll come to the table in a bit. We'll preach the gospel to ourselves. The gospel is the only way for us to live this winsomely offensive life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you know that my heart is desperate. My heart is absolutely desperate for me to become a better witness of your grace, your gospel, and your truth. You know that I do not want to live another year without becoming more faithful in the proclamation of your gospel. And you know that we did not plant this church. We did not plant this church so that believers would have a home, but we planted this church so believers could be gathered to go reach unbelievers. I pray that you would take this message, this text, this part of what love is and push it deep into our hearts through repentance and faith and draw out of us obedience, draw out of us Christ-likeness, draw out of us the ability to offend in such a way that people do not wanna send us away. In your name we pray.